Discretionary listener participation is advised for the following pro wrestling podcast. Private eyes, they're watching you. Private ears are listening to the Stitcher Wrestling Podcast. I want to thank my friends at Hall and Oates for writing that song about their favorite podcast, Stick to Wrestling. Where if you give us 60 minutes, perhaps indeed, we will give you a raw bone podcast. It's a wicked good podcast, and it's the people's podcast. It's the major league of professional wrestling podcast, and it's got more hits than Sadaharu O. You knew I was going to say that. Follow me on Twitter. Just put in the name John McAdam. Well, by the way, let me introduce myself. I'm John McAdam. I forgot that little detail. Um, if you go to Twitter and search my name, follow the guys who, have, who are fighting with chairs. And also, we have a Facebook page that you can contribute to. We have all kinds of cool results and pictures and conversation. And we actually have a Fantasy Crockett Cup, the 1981 Crockett Cup. And if you join today, you might be able to get in, get in on the finals of that. Coming up this week. Saturday the 21st is Shane Douglas's birthday. I know Shane is kind of a controversial figure, but he turns 56, and I was pretty entertained by that guy back in the mid-90s, so happy birthday. Now we're going to start the show with something a little bit off. There has been a rumor circulating since the 80s that the Freebirds urinated on Wrestling Observer Newsletter editor Dave Meltzer. It's not a true story. The story has been, and the internet has poured gas on this, and I just saw it on, on the 605 board. The real story is even weirder. The Freebirds urinated on a, guy, on a guy named Dave. It wasn't Dave Melter. It was someone from Philadelphia. I'm not going to give out his last name because he's probably had grandkids by now who don't need to hear about this. Apparently, if the Freebirds liked you, they would urinate on you. I don't get it either, but that's how we're kicking off this show with that particular story and with that i want to bring on someone i've known online for like 20 years i've been mispronouncing his name for 20 years but he's a really cool guy he knows his mid-atlantic wrestling like crazy i want to bring in now we've had north carolina represented now we're having north carolina state represented will rickard thank you for coming on hey thanks john i appreciate it and i i do appreciate coming on after a urination story that uh, well and, and now i want to get your take on this urination story because i'm trying to figure out the logistics of this right the freebirds they like a guy do they say okay look you're kind of going to be a, a minor league freebird or part of our group we just need to do this one little thing or do they sneak up on you like how does this work i have no idea do you have any speculation on this I, I have no idea. I just know that based on, you know, with that, that's what makes the 30th or 40th excrement related story about wrestling that you've ever heard of. Right. I mean, there's so <laughs> many stories in that. It's, it's a weird theme um, in the business. I can't quite grasp it. But I guess it's just part of the mythology. Yeah. I'm not sure how you would go around. I don't know what, if you like somebody, why you would do that. But, you know. Uh, those guys were a little bit different too. Uh, 80s wrestlers were definitely a little bit different. I mean, I, like I said, I don't know the exact semantics of that story, but I, I know it happened. I know there was, there was this guy named Dave and the Freebirds urinated on him, but it wasn't Dave Meltzer. So anyway, now that we have that out of the way, Will, you have, I mean, you grew up in North Carolina. Did you grow up right near Greensboro? 
I grew up in a little town just south of Raleigh called Sanford. So we're literally right in the middle of, you know, I'm 45 minutes away from Raleigh. I'm 45 minutes away from Fayetteville and an hour away from Greensboro. So I'm dead in the center of the state. And, you know, so uh, by the time I get into wrestling and the time I have the chance to go, I have, you know, I'm relatively close to three of the, you know, two major towns that they ran. And then, you know, fate will be in maybe more of a minor town. So, yeah. So right there in the middle of it. Okay. And you, we had gone back and forth on instant message, you know, a little bit this week about this show. And, you know, you, you made me think of something or realize something that I hadn't realized before that Greensboro was actually like the Madison square garden of the mid Atlantic territory, because I'm thinking about, okay, Starcade was in Greensboro. So right there. And they had a whole bunch of major angles and shows in Greensboro. And the more I think about it, Charlotte was not the hub. Raleigh wasn't the hub. Greensboro was the hub. Right. It was is the biggest house in, you know, in the southeast. So, I mean, if you were going to have a major show and then work it around the horn like they did with, um, say, Boogeyman Jam or some of those other things, you would kick it off in Greensboro because that's where you were going to sell out. You know, you would get... 15 to maybe 20,000 in, uh, you know, maybe not quite that much. You had the opportunity to, I mean, in Starcade 83, the place was packed. Um, oh, I believe and, that. And that's not a lie. And in just about every Starcade until it started losing some of its luster, Greensboro Coliseum was fairly big. You know, most of the times you go to a house show and it would just be the lower bowl. But Starcade and some of the bigger events, you know, they'd have that upper bowl available too. But yeah, I mean, that's where you're going to make the most money. So you may as well start there and then start working it around to Norfolk and Charleston and wherever else you're going with it. Oh, yeah. I mean, there, there's the legendary story that the uh, the night they had the cage match in Greensboro with Slaughter and Kernodal against uh, Steamboat and Youngblood, that not only was it sold out, it created a massive traffic jam in the area because you had people leaving because they couldn't get seats. You had people coming in who did. And I mean, have you ever heard anything about that? It wasn't uncommon. I, I know for Starcades that I went to and some other shows, it'd be fairly busy. You you would definitely have traffic issues. It was kind of weird getting in and out of Greensboro in any way because you had to come up to High Point Road. Um, not that anybody needs a lot of traffic directions on that, but it wasn't always the easiest place to get in and out of because most of the main entrances were on a side street. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I mean, but for, again, that I came into wrestling just after that cage match and after that whole feud, but I was aware of it because, you know, I had friends that were into wrestling. So I was aware of, of that entire feud and you would hear about, yeah, they had to turn away X amount of people who tried to walk up for some of those matches, which again, if you think about it now, that's, that's almost unheard of to just completely sell out a building like that. But yeah, I mean, when mid Atlantic was on fire and when they had the right angles going, they could print money pretty much regardless of who was booking. I mean, you were, I'm, I'm not being totally linear here, but like, you know, you talked about Greensboro and, and you went to the shows. I'm assuming you went to, you know, non Greensboro shows as well. And I think back to like going to the Boston garden every month and then going to spot shows. I miss it and it's gone. It's never coming back. And I just miss that so much. You must miss yeah. it a lot. There was a huge different, like going to Greensboro. Greensboro was my first show. Starcade 83 was my first show. So that was my frame of reference. And even though I was in the upper bowl, it was still an event. I was 13 years old. When I first got to go to um, Cumberland County, that had its own, you know, much smaller as an arena, much smaller. 
still it was a great show that you know and then going to Dorton Arena in Raleigh same thing um smaller venue old venue but the shows were very unique the way that they had everything set up was very unique and you know when you sat ringside you were right up against the ring in just about any of them so again it was um you got to be up close you got to have a lot of fun and i do miss that when i went to an nxt show um in concord north carolina like uh, about three years ago walking in it gave me chills because it felt like oh yeah that's what it was like to walk into an arena and see see the mat and see the lights the only thing missing was um that impenetrable cloud of smoke um from the 80s that you would have but no i mean i miss it i miss going to wrestling matches and i heard today that it sounded like the wwe was going to go away from house shows once you know this pandemic clears and that makes me really sad because that's a way for the fans to connect with the wrestlers and a wrestlers to learn their craft that at that level i don't know how you get that back I had not heard that, and that really surprises me because I know they still make big-time money at house shows, not just from attendance, but from, I mean, they sell a lot of merchandise at the yeah. show, so I'm really surprised to hear that. Yeah, I mean, I just heard about it today, and then I went and checked online a couple places, and um, and they were verifying the story. They just, um, again, I think it's a tragedy, but I also think then, from the standpoint of the WWE workers now, it's less time on the road for them, less chances for injury. So that's not a bad thing. Um, I don't know how it works with, you know, their money. I mean, they're not making money off of house shows now, so I don't know what it works for them. And I think it, it opens up opportunities for maybe some of the smaller promotions or independent. People are still going to want to go see wrestling. So it's just, you know, how do you get that to them? And how do you get the talent to get that to them in a way where the production is something that they expect. I think that's the biggest drop off is people want to see wrestling, but they're used to much um, more professional production than I think, you know, spot shows 20 years would have been. Oh yeah. I mean, I remember going to the spot shows in the eighties. I mean, they, it was literally <laughs> just like put a light bulb over the ring, set up a ring and you're good to go. And now no way. Right. No, you need, I mean, I don't need a big jumbotron or anything like that. And, uh, NXT shows that I went to were were fairly, you know, simple and you know, they had the video screen, but aside from that, it was pretty much just lights and the ring. But when you go to a house show, that's all you need. I don't need a lot of promos. You know, I don't need anything other than the guys in the ring. And that's what I when I got back into wrestling in in 2007, 2007 NXT is what I, I drifted to because that was more like the wrestling that I was used to when I was a teenager because, you know, clearly Triple H has an affinity for that style of wrestling and it, it bled out into everything that they did. So I had a, a really strong appreciation for what they were doing and, and enjoyed every bit of that. I mean, I, I like NXT and the most disappointing part is, you know, it's like, Supposedly, it's like the WWF's deve developmental, right? I was lucky enough to see, this is back like 25 years ago, I went to see the Pawtucket Red Sox play, and Derek Jeter was the shortstop for the Columbus Clippers, and Nomar Garciaparra was the shortstop for the Pawtucket Red Sox, and we're like, wow, you know, we're going to see these guys in the majors sometimes. With NXT, it's like a downer when these guys get brought up because you know the WWF's going to mess it all up, and they do 100% yeah. of the time. Yeah, when I took my daughter to the NXT show in Concord, and funny story there is, you know, we sat ringside, and again, going in, it was like, oh, I'm 
you know, I'm back in my element. Chris Ono came out and I immediately start heckling him because that's what I did when I was at wrestling shows in my teens. I heckled, I heckled the good guys. I didn't tell my daughter that that was going to happen. And she was absolutely horrified that I was doing that. <laughs> And I had to explain to her, I'm like, no, no, it, it's wrestling. It's okay that you do this. But, you know, and, and she didn't quite get that. But we saw Patrick Clark. We saw that maybe it's, it was his first runaround as um, Velveteen Dream before they introduced the character on TV. And he put on a hell of a show. And that was like, okay, that guy's going to be something. He's got that charisma. He's got that personality. You want to watch him in the ring. And, you know, because he can make you laugh and he was super athletic. So, again, it was being able to see stuff like that. But, yeah, you're right. You almost get to the point where you didn't want them to bring people up from the NXT roster because you knew that that was going to be it. They were never going to get pushed the way that they got pushed in NXT. Yeah, it's it's almost like the WWF doesn't want to create a new Steve Austin, a new rock. And, you know, it's all about keeping everyone humble. Well, guess what? You know, sometimes humility it, it, humility and being a pro wrestler do not necessarily go hand in hand. No, and I don't see the point. I mean, again, it, it seems like you'd want to make as many stars as you can. I think maybe the worry is that, you know, they make these stars and then they don't need the business anymore to sustain that. But the only product I watch right now, honestly, is AEW. I'm really not actively watching anything um, WWE really since the pandemic hit. So. That's what I'm paying. If I'm watching anything now, it's AEW. Yeah, I get WWE Network, and I watch their live events, like Starcade's coming up in a couple of weeks, but that that's pretty much it for me. So you started now. I want you to tell this story about how you got smartened up to the wrestling business. Yeah, so I walked in. I, I went, to, went to college in Greensboro from 88 to 92, and then prior to that, I'd gone to all the Greensboro shows. And was very, you know, familiar with those guys in row D. I went into a comic book store and the, I hate it, John. What's the guy's name again? I'm, I uh, John Hitchcock. Say, yeah, I keep wanting to say Davenport and I have no idea why I want to say Davenport. Yeah, so I walk into the comic book store and there's Hitchcock. And I was like, oh, you're the, you're the dude from the wrestling shows. You, you sat in the front row and we start talking and then he starts just talking all these terms about heel and work. And I knew what wrestling was. I knew things were predetermined. I didn't know the terminology. I didn't really know at that level. And he's using, and I, I had to stop him and like, and then I walk out of that store and he, he lent me two copies of the observer because I had never heard of Dave Meltzer before I walked in there. I'd never heard of the observer. I was completely unaware of the entire, that whole underground smart side of professional wrestling so yeah he completely smarted me up I, I i read those annuals front to back and then by the time i got the internet i found the news from dayton and was on that all the time that led me to wrestling classics and, and all that stuff so he kind of sent me off on a, a second part of being a wrestling fan where i kind of understood the business more which the more I think about it, I thought about how weird it is that wrestling fans want to know more about the inside of the business than say we really want to know about. I, mean, I don't really care about how the Panthers are run or or the Hornets are run, although, you know, not great. But, you know, there's just this mystique around the business that the more you know about that and the more you feel like you're in on it, the closer you feel to the business, 
And depending on what internet site you're on and who you are, that can be a good or bad thing because you've got a good part of that. And then you've got a fairly toxic side of, you know, I think that we've both seen where you either feel entitled or you just, I just hate everything. And, you know, and I'll crap on this wrestler because he's here. I'll crap on that wrestler because he's there. And, you know, they're, they're busting their ass to entertain you. And really that's kind of where I came to it is I'm happy if they're working hard and I can tell if they're working hard, if they're, sincere about and they seem to love the sport that's really all i care about at this point yeah you know you mentioned something about like having a second life as a wrestling fan and i I can really relate to that because i had been a fan since 76 and december 86 i come home and i won't tell the story about how they got there but there were three copies of the wrestling observer newsletter which just i mean it blew my mind i was up until four in the morning reading them And it changed my, you know, it was almost like, okay, well, this is the way things were then. And then you have that like second life as a wrestling fan, you know, being smartened up. I mean, what year did you have that? That uh, would have been 92. So I I had been watching, you know, actively watching wrestling for just under 10 years before I got to that point. And then I moved to Charlotte in the mid nineties and worked out, you know, Flair had those gold's gems. And I worked out the one in Pineville and you, you'd have a chance to meet a lot of people. You know, you get a chance to meet Arn and meet the barbarian and his wife were in there all the time. Flair was in there quite a bit. And, you know, I always tried to be respectful because, again, just because, you know, that side of the business, I think I think it's impolite to let them know that, you know, that side of the business, because really, I don't know anything and I don't. So, um it certainly made it different when I would actually have a chance to talk, you know, Arn Anderson would, you know, sat and I'd talk to him for 15 minutes. Flair, when he had time would sit and talk, didn't talk much with the barbarian, but he and his wife were super nice. Um, the only one that was ever kind of, I don't know if I should say Stan Lane was a little different. I got to meet him a couple of times. Stan Lane was just a little different. Uh, he, he was stuck somewhere in 1987 and 1997. <laughs> I have met Stan and uh, you know, more than once, and I've always had good luck with him, but I have heard stories from other people that were not as positive. Not negative so much. It just, he, you would see him at the gym and he was wearing his, you know, the sleeves cut off of the sweatshirt, the Zubas and a fanny pack. You would see him at Bar Charlotte later that week at 10 o'clock at night. He was wearing the cut off, you know, sweatshirt with the cutoff sleeves, the Zubas and the fanny pack and, and the shades. It, he seemed to have one outfit. I, I never personally, entered, I just saw him a lot and he was the same person no matter where you, you saw him. And so, so I'm not, not necessarily bad, just different. All right. A little bit of an aside. I think the Carolina Panthers made a sensational hire in Matt rule. And I think you guys have a lot to look forward to. Tell me how you first became a wrestling fan. Like how, how did that whole process go? So summer of 1983, I was hanging out with my best friend at the time and we were walking around and he starts talking about, Hey, I watched, I watched wrestling, this wrestling show on, on Saturday night. And, you know, I knew of that because mid Atlantic championship wrestling ran on the local ABC affiliate and out of Raleigh every Saturday night at 1130. I usually watch Saturday Night Live or something else, but I wasn't actively watching wrestling. But I guess they were in that the Greg Valentine, Roddy Piper angle where Valentine, you know, savaged Roddy Piper with a belt 
um, nearly cut off his ear. And then for some reason, you know, they stop the match and give Valentine the belt. And it was about Piper. And he's telling this story. He's like, yeah. And, and they had this guy and they're just showing and he's talking about Piper. So he's talking about like, well, OK, this is interesting. I think I'll watch. So the next weekend I started watching for that angle alone. And then that was about the same time that they were starting to plant the seeds for Starcade. So shortly after I start watching is when Ric Flair loses the belt to Harley Race in St. Louis. And they make a big deal about it in in North Carolina, Mid-Atlantic, because, you know, in, in Mid-Atlantic, Flair is, uh, is the baby face. Right. Um, so they lie. Well, it looked like he may have got his shoulder up. And so then they kind of dedicate, they bring Flair in and he's doing, when he's a baby face, his promos were very understated and, you know, almost whispering as opposed to when he was the brash or humble Ric Flair is what you would get there and very mm-hmm. respectful. And, you know, when he would talk to Bob Cottle and so they start building that up and then that's when the race race bounty angle started. So then just all of a sudden it's just this perfect storm is like, okay, well we got Roddy Piper and now he's wanting to have a dog collar match with Greg Valentine. And, you know, you've got Harley race doesn't want Ric Flair to get the belt back. And um, on mid Atlantic TV, they showed the Flair race match you know, almost in its entirety. And at the end, that's when Dick Slater comes out and then Bob Orton Jr. comes out. You think, okay, Orton Jr. is going to make the save and then uh, he makes the turn. So, and I'm just, it's it's 12.30 at night on the Saturday and I'm just infuriated. I'm 13 years old. I'm just, cur- you know, pulsing with hormones and anger because <laughs> Ric Flair just got screwed. And I'm not even thinking about, hey, this is this is fake or, I am angry because this was very unfair. And and I guess that's when I got hooked. And so you had that angle going on. You had um, Steamboat and Youngblood were chasing the Briscoe brothers for the world belts. And then you had Charlie Brown from out of town, which is Jimmy Valiant under a hood, feuding with Gary Hart and Kabuki. So you had all these great angles. So then that's what I'm watching. And I'm watching every weekend and I'm, I'm really into it. And then I, I don't remember what magazine it was. It was an after magazine before it was ever announced on TV. But it was like, hey, there's going to be this big match in Greensboro on Thanksgiving. And it's going to be Flair and Harley Race in a cage and Roddy Piper and Greg Valentine in a dog collar match and the Briscoes versus Steamboat Youngblood and Wahoo McDaniel and Hulk Hogan versus Slater and Orton. And, you know, it's like, well, this just sounds awesome and I have to be there. So I literally, being the subtle person that I was, left the magazine on my parents' bed open to that page, (laughs) Um, you know, because, you know, just they might happen across and see it. And then from that (laughs) night on, it was like the Simpsons episode where they want to go to Itchy and Scratchy Land. It's like, hey, can I go to Starcade? Can I go to Starcade? Can I go to Starcade? And um, wore them down. And me and three other friends somehow managed to work it all out that we would get our Thanksgiving dinners and do everything. And then we would go to Greensboro for Starcade. Um, wow. So that was the whole lead up to that. The night itself was awesome. I mean, we were sitting in the upper bowl. The seats weren't great, but we were there. Yeah. And we got to see the whole thing, every bit of it. And my memories of the 13 year old are much different than my memories of a 50 year old. And I've watched Starcade 83 a couple times. And at this point, really only the tag team match, the, the world title, world tag team title match holds up. 
the dog collar match is a top 10 match for me, period. Everything else, quality-wise, and, and again, I, I cynically, you know, as someone that, that looks at it like that, you know, the whole thing doesn't stand up, but it's still a memory. It solidified where I was as a wrestling fan, and it meant this is what I was going to be doing for the next few years. I, I was not going to turn my back on wrestling anytime soon because, you know, you had Ric Flair and then I didn't realize that Piper was on his way out and, you know, you had Steamboat and you didn't, you know, you kind of had to cycle some of these guys in and out. But um, I came in at right at the time when Mid-Atlantic just became really strong and really on fire and they had some really good angles. All right. You know, and um, I want to ask you about this. Did you get to see the Briscoes turn heel? On TV. I mean, they now it was kind of an on TV thing because what was happening yeah. at that time is, yeah, it was like they were doing that thing where we just want a shot. You know, we just want to have a shot at the belts. And, you know, they you know, they had that, you know, that Oklahoma, well, you just want a shot at the belts. And we just, it's fair play. And, you know, but you knew it was a little sinister. And then on TV, they, you know, they they announced the title change where the Briscoes beat um, Steamboat and Youngblood. And, you know, it was clearly you know, they, they went full heel at that time. And I, at that time, I didn't know that much about the history of the Briscoes period, either Jack or Jerry. So again, looking back on it now with what I know now, I feel very lucky to have seen that because that was probably their last major angle anywhere at that point. And they, they had a, they had good matches with Steamboat and Youngblood. Oh yeah. I believe that. I mean, I saw the tapes back in the eighties and I thought the turn was just phenomenal. Like you said, they're just like, Hey, we just want a title shot. You know, we're still friends and all that. And then they have a, a, a spot where Jack Briscoe has Jay Youngblood caught in the figure four leg lock and oh, Jerry yeah. whoops, accidentally falls down on Jay's leg. And Oh my God, we're so sorry. Can we please have a rematch now that Jay can't continue because his knee was hurt. And then they have the rematch, and once again, they do the spot where Jack has Jay in the figure four leg lock, and this time, Jerry just dives like a falcon on top of the guy's leg and injures him. It was great. I don't know if Dory Funk was booking at that point. I don't know who had the book at that point. I believe it was was Dory. Okay. I think one of the things that we were lucky enough to have is you had angles that took months to play out because you weren't working from pay-per-view to pay-per-view because there wasn't such a thing yet. Right. Um, so angles took three to six months to play out. So it was just slow. And you could take a month of little things on TV to turn. And to me, that made it more credible. It was like, well, you know, you can see which way that turned. It just wasn't, everything made sense. Even to a 13 year old, it made sense. I get what happened there. All right. I'll tell you what, I ask this question a lot to my guests on this show because I'm I'm genuinely interested. What was it like when the WWF all of a sudden, or maybe not even all of a sudden, but what how did it feel when A, you saw a lot of the Mid-Atlantic guys migrating to this new television show? Uh, I mean, what was it like when the WWF invaded Greensboro? Uh they weren't holding a lot of shows in North Carolina. I don't know when they held their first house show in North Carolina. First, all we had in the area was we had world class. That was really the only thing outside of Crockett that we had. Otherwise, we had worldwide wrestling Saturday mornings at 11. You had East Coast wrestling that came on at six o'clock on Saturday nights. East and Coast wrestling. Is that a an outlaw? No, East Coast wrestling was like a 
It was a weird mid-Atlantic show that Big okay. Ward yeah, would do the commentary. He was just doing commentary over tapes in the studio. And you would see weird matches. Like they, I saw a match where, um, I guess, Kevin and David Von Erich had come in to do a, a world title tag team tournament. And they were res- he was re- wrestling Rufus Jones and somebody else. But, you know, the Von Erichs were heel. It was a really weird show. But that came on on Saturdays at 6. It was kind of like a C show. And then Mid-Atlantic, the main show, at 11.30 every Saturday night. So that's all we had. Every now and then I could pick up a Florida championship wrestling from Florida out of Florence, North Carolina, if the weather was right and I stood right next to the TV with the antenna held a certain way. Um, I've been there. And then we started getting, Sundays we started getting WWE syndicated programming. By then, Piper had already gone. So, so Piper did Starcade 83. He worked out his contract, I guess, through December. And then he went up and he started for Vince sometime in 84. So by the time we're getting it, okay, so he's up in the WWF now. And so we didn't see it immediately. But then you started seeing people pass through. Junkyard Dog ended up there. Barry Windham ended up there. So... It, I was fortunate in that the wrestlers that I really liked weren't showing up there until Ricky Steamboat showed up there. So I didn't think much about it. Again, not knowing that much of the business, I didn't realize, you know, what they were really trying to do. And naive to me, I was like, well, you know, we're, he can't do anything to Crockett. So, you know, I'm aware of the whole Georgia Championship Wrestling and Black Saturday and, and all that stuff. But I didn't have cable at the time, so I didn't know about any of that at the time either. I was really... If I didn't see it in an aftermag at the time, I didn't know anything about it. If it didn't happen in in Jim Crockett Promotions territory. I I totally understand that world. Number one, wrestling with the antenna, hoping that I can get the show from Worcester, Massachusetts. (laughs) And, you know, if if the aftermags or the kites mags, if it wasn't in there, like there was no way I could know about it. Yeah. But as far as the shows themselves, it was, I mean, they seem to be more interview based. I mean, you know, that, by then, I think Mean Gene was up there. So it was, um, you know, it's clear that that's what they were starting. In, in hindsight, clearly, those were the seeds that were being planted. Hey, we're going to start showing all this syndicated programming all over the place to familiarize folks with the product. And they put out that WWF magazine shortly after Hogan. He came in and won the belt off his sheet because I got that. You know, I, I still... I didn't think of him as a competitor of what I watched, so I thought it was just something cool to keep up with. And I was right. like, okay, well, Hogan's up there, and that's why maybe he didn't he didn't show up at Starcade. So, you know, there was just a lot of... I have filled in a lot of gaps since then, but at the time, I was just kind of like, okay, well, that happened, that happened. I'm just going to roll with it. Okay, now, 87 and 88, uh, you're still a fan, and we start to see the you know Mid-Atlantic is now call the nwa we start to see them slide significantly i mean you know it it can't be denied their attendance started i mean just going downhill really fast like what were some of your observations as far as like you know someone who's going to the shows and seeing the crowd get smaller and smaller completely understandable because and and i'll boil it down to one thing when rick flair started that feud with jimmy garvin over precious and he rolled out on TV making out with a mannequin one day. I remember that. My best friend and I were like, what the F 
is this? And it's like, I, Rick, this isn't Rick Flair. Rick Flair's classy. This isn't classy. You could tell that things were, were really, you know, the booking wasn't great. I don't remember. It was it, at that point, I guess Dusty had already gone up and was doing, you know, the, the plumber gimmick in WWF. So, and, and at that time, I think they were booking by committee, if I'm not wrong. That's so, like um, 89. That's like the yeah. Garvin angle was like 86. Yeah, that, the Garvin yeah. angle was 87. And then Dusty was actually shown the door at the very end of 1988. And then, then he came to the WWF in the okay. summer of 89. Yeah, I, again, it, it bleeds together. But there was a significant slide in what we found entertaining at the time and what, you know, and what would have us come out there. But, you know, as long as Flair was the champ, that was to me, that was the biggest draw. As long as Flair was there, um, I remember being really disappointed when Arn and Tully went to the WWF. I think that was probably the first time that I was like, oh my God, I can't believe that they are gone. But yeah, I mean, it, it, I just think it was the booking just wasn't great during there was probably like a three year period where the booking was just really inconsistent. And I think people had gotten over, you know, Dusty had attached himself to everybody popular that came through and so unless you wanted to see dusty with the road warriors or dusty with you know nikita koloff or dusty you know you weren't going to see much else unless dusty was a part of that and and that was something that kind of killed it for me you know i i would judge it based on how much my best friend and i would talk about it you know that next week or or would we be excited to go to see a show and it just started getting pretty predictable and not entertaining for us I mean, as someone who watched it on WTBS, like I picked up on that, that Dusty attached himself to Magnum TA with America's team. He attached himself to Ronnie Garvin with the Risky Business Boys, the Road Warriors with the six-man titles. You know, when Nikita turned, Dusty was right there. I mean, to me, even as as a non-smart fan at the time, I thought Dusty was just so overbearing. I, I was a fan of his, too, but I just thought he was a little out of control. And you would see that in the house shows. It's, Dusty wasn't getting unanimous. I mean, he you had people that were going to pull for the baby faces no matter what. That was never me. I, you know, I had when Flair turned on Dusty in 85 or whatever, whenever it was in Atlanta, when Ole and Arn got in a cage, when Flair turned, I was like, well, I'm not going to not pull for Ric Flair just because he did that to Dusty Rhodes because I don't particularly care for Dusty Rhodes. You know, I was completely fine with everybody turning heel and doing that anyway. But, you know, you'd be at the matches and Dusty, it was 50-50. And sometimes I think he would be surprised. Sometimes it would be even a little bit louder for Flair. And, you know, some you can't hide some things. And, you know, Dusty a couple of times would be looking around like, well, that I'm not getting cheered the way that a face should be getting cheered. The only other time I saw that was when Hogan was in kind of soon early in his WCW run. And we went to Winston-Salem to see Monday Nitro and Hogan came out and they were going to rest. He was, he and somebody were wrestling Flair and Arn and Hogan got booed harder than anybody I'd ever heard get booed in any arena ever. And that foretold, I think the heel turn, because I think fans were over him. You can only assert that dominance so long before fans just get tired of it. I mean, I I remember those glory days of the early Nitros when people would be tearing up Hulk Hogan merchandise on on the camera. I mean, you got to know, look, 
Hogan is the outsider. You know, he's been the number one guy for the promotion that's trying to destroy your promotion. Now you bring him in and feud him with Flair and Arn. And wow, you know, it didn't work, especially in North Carolina. Now, I have an unpopular opinion. You talked about when Tully and Arn left the NWA for the WWF, like that was like a really bad thing for you. I thought they kind of did the NWA a favor because they were stale. And don't get me wrong, Arn and Tully were major talents. They were great wrestlers. I'm not saying anything bad about them, but in my opinion, they had gotten stale. Arn, you could turn babyface if you wanted to. Tully, I guess, if he went along for the ride with the rest of the horsemen. But, I mean, I think by getting them out of the way in 1988, you kind of, or in theory, you created a spot for new stars, which really didn't happen, but it should have. Now, you have an unpopular opinion. It involves Magnum TA and Sting. Yeah. My unpopular opinion is that if Magnum doesn't have that awful wreck that happened a few miles away from where I live, I do believe that would have put Sting on a different trajectory. I, I don't think he would have had the spot that he had going into um, that Clash of the Champions in 88. Was it spring of 88, that first Clash of the Champions? Yep. He has that, that long match with Flair. I, you know, I think that that's Magnum TA's spot. I think Magnum TA would have had that. I think he was probably going to get a run at the belt. I don't see him necessarily going to WWF Magnum. And I think if if Magnum stays healthy and he stays on course, I think Sting probably ends up in WWF. And maybe he's just as successful in a different get character with a different gimmick. But I think it was always going to be Magnum TA. And I'm sure there's people that maybe disagree with the way that he worked. But again, having seen him in house shows, he had that thing. If he was in there, even if you weren't pulling for him, you had to watch the guy. You wanted to watch him wrestle. You wanted to watch his every move. When he was in a tag team match and he wasn't in the ring, you still watched him because you wanted to see how he was reacting and how he was working with the other guys. So, yeah, I think it would have been a much different career path for Steve if I say that like I know him. For Sting, (laughs) if Magnum sticks around and gets a run with the belt, maybe has a heel turn. You know, again, maybe he was destined to have a feud with Dusty, which, you know, I think probably would have been would have been awesome. But, yeah, that's I think. Magnum PA was the future of Jim Crockett promotions. And maybe with that car wreck was kind of the story of the rest of Jim Crockett promotions after that. Cause I don't think the promotion ever really recovered completely from losing him. Now you see, I have a, a different opinion and, you know, obviously reasonable minds can do that. I figured that if Magnum TA did not have that car wreck, this is another unpopular opinion he would have become less and less popular over time, kind of like what happened to the Rock and Roll Express, who were over like crazy in 85 and 86, but at 87, they started to really fall off. But yeah. one thing you said, and I've, I've said this on the show before, I really believe that Magnum would have turned heel on Dusty Rhodes just because all of Dusty's best friends throughout his career turned on him. It was just right. how Dusty ran. Yeah, he was Dusty. He's like, he's like Jimmy Valiant. Jimmy Valiant, his entire career, he was destined to be turned on and destined to be the target of whatever manager that that happened by. You know, Dusty Rhodes just did it at a higher level on the card. But yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's definitely how it would have turned out. As interesting as it would have been for Dusty Rhodes to turn heel on Magnum TA and put Magnum T over, you know, that was never going to happen. 
Never going to (laughs) happen. I mean, Dusty was Dusty. I was a fan of Dusty's, but he, you know, no matter what, I mean, he, he fed his ego. Now I want to talk about something you mentioned in one of your messages to me. Please tell us about the importance of Mid-Atlantic wrestling in an area with no major sports at the time, other than NASCAR and ACC basketball. Yeah. So, I mean, that's it in a nutshell. There was nothing else to go out and spend your money on. So, you know, ACC was huge, you know, and in fact, in 83, I had, I was lucky enough to be in Albuquerque when North Carolina State won that game. So in, in one year, I went from North Carolina State winning the national championship and being there for that to being at Starcade. Not but, bad. Yeah, but I mean, you didn't have anything else. And so, you know, if you were in North Carolina and you liked football, you were a Cowboys, Washington, or Steelers fan. And that was usually about it. If you were a baseball fan, it was, well, you're Yankees, Braves, or whoever. I happen to be a Dodgers fan. We didn't have basketball. I was a Celtics fan growing up. So what Jim Crockett promotions did is they gave people an opportunity in all the different types of towns, not just Greensboro, but, you know, Withful, Virginia, or Siler City, North Carolina. If you had a gym and you could maybe get a sponsorship or, you know, get on, get on with some sort of charity stuff, you could have a show. And people would go see those shows. And so I think at one time Crockett was running maybe three shows a night every week because there was nowhere else to give that money to. So they had a monopoly on, you know, quote unquote, professional sports. And it was, you know, you still had a lot. It was still niche. You still had a lot of people that didn't care for wrestling. I mean, I was a bit of a pariah in my family for the level of wrestling fan that I was. I know the feeling. But at the same time, there was, you know, there were a lot of people like that. And I didn't really. What's the saying for people that understand it? You don't need an explanation. For people that don't understand it, no explanation would possibly ever do. And and I really settled on that. Like, I get why I like this. I understand it. I don't need anybody else to like it for me to like it. Yeah. Not sticking to wrestling for a second. I think it is absolutely crazy that North Carolina, the Tri-Cities, did not have an NBA team. I still think it's crazy that Louisville does not have an NBA team. I mean, Uh, what are we waiting for? Yeah, I mean, Charlotte is its own state. Charlotte is part of North Carolina, but we aren't of North Carolina. So I think Charlotte was always destined to get these things just because of the money and the connections. Um, You know, when Raleigh finally got the Whalers to come down, Mm -hmm. I mean, that that was pretty big. It's really weird how they manage that. I mean, again, the, the talk down here for 20 years has been about how do we get a major league baseball team and where do we put a major league baseball team? Because for the most part, people wanted to put it kind of near in Kernersville, which is just kind of Southeast of Winston Salem, which is right next to Greensboro. And, you know, how do you get people to drive for that many games? So, you know, it's so North Carolina is a weird state because it's, it's, it's kind of long. It's kind of spread out. So if you're going to have professional teams, they're either going to be in one part that's a metropolitan area or a part where they're trying to draw from three or four different cities. All right, well, I'll tell you, baseball needs to be in Charlotte and it needs to be in Nashville. It's waited way too long. Yeah. There's a demand there. We have listener questions. Let me see. Chris Tabar, what should they have done with Sergeant Slaughter after the tag team cage match? This is like February and March 1983. What do you think? I thought about that and 
I think to that point, Slaughter had been in the area pretty consistently since late 1981, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, He had had a run with the, I think he had the U.S. belt not long after he got here. And then he had the gimmick with, um, hey, you know, nobody can beat my Cobra Clutch. And and I think he had a finish with Barry Windham. I think they, I think that built up to a Barry Windham feud. And then, you know, and then after he had his run with the U.S. belt is when he brought in Jim Nelson. And then they brought in Don Carnoodle right. uh, to do that private Nelson, private Carnoodle thing. And, you know, and then you saw, then they started the tag team with Sergeant Slaughter and Carnoodle and Nelson kind of slid out of the picture there i'm not sure there may have been more of an angle in there but i don't i haven't seen that but honestly from what i've seen on the network and reading about it as hot as any feud was that i saw for 83 or 84 there was nothing hotter than that ricky steamboat jay youngblood colonel slaughter feud i mean that was that was one where again they turned people away you probably had you know fights in the arena um, they were bloodbaths. I, 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 you've seen, have you seen the match? Um, yes, I have. Yeah, I mean, it's bloodbath. I mean, Carnotal looks like someone just took an axe to him at the end of that match. I remember um, seeing the pictures in Inside Wrestling and being like, oh yeah. my God. It, it was just, it was brutal, which I do miss that, by the way. But I, I think by the time Sergeant Slaughter had had that run, I don't know what else there was for him to do in Mid-Atlantic. So I think it made sense because it was pretty normal for guys like Slaughter and Valentine. After they had been in Mid-Atlantic for a while, they would go up and work for Vince and, you know, do some shows up there and have a feud against Backland or or something like that and, you know, make some money and then come back down. So I, I think by the time that feud was over, I don't think that there was much left for Slaughter to do in the Mid-Atlantic until he, he needed to be away for a little bit, which, again, I think is sometimes the problem we have in the modern is you you see these guys every week and you never really get a chance to miss them. And, you know, it was different when, okay, Sergeant Slaughter's gone. And then, oh, Sergeant Slaughter's back after six months. And it was entertaining again. You you weren't over the fact that he had been there for so long. I agree with your answer. And by the way, what a great gimmick. I wonder who came up with that, the idea that Sergeant Slaughter was going to have two minions, two privates working under him. But I mean, that's a great gimmick. I agree with you. I think what they should have done with Slaughter after the tag team cage match was kind of phase him out. They had a few rematches after that and then let him go back up to the WWF and make some money because I I really miss that about wrestling. Like, you know, guys would come and go and they'd leave and get freshened up and be back in a couple of years. Like I, you know, now you watch the same guys week after week and nothing changes. I mean, you know, Randy Orton is great, but I'm tired of him. I mean, I I want him to go to another territory for a couple of years where I don't see him. And then he'll come back and I'll be like, Oh great. Randy Orton's back. Bob Parsons wants to know how come Ric Flair never figured (laughs) out that climbing to the top rope wasn't a very good idea. So it was a good idea if he was a baby face. It, it ah. was like, there's, there's a Ric Flair flow chart for that. So, okay, you're up on the top rope. Are you a face? Yes. Then go ahead with the elbow drop. Um, <laughs> if, if you're a heel, you stand there and you get body slammed off the top rope, or you go for the elbow drop and you get punched in the stomach, then you do that flop thing. I actually had a con- We were having a conversation, me and Bob and, and, um, and Alfred um, and Jeff earlier today about as much stick as Hulk Hogan gets for having really formulate matches in the 80s, honestly, 
Ric Flair had formulate matches in the 80s and he wrestled it got to the point where he was wrestling the same match just about every night and and he brought out the best in his opponents but you know you knew the spots were coming and when they happened you know again after I've seen that spot 30 or 40 times it doesn't translate as well no I mean I forget where I heard him say this it might have been on Dave Meltzer's old IATA show where Rick went to see Ray Stevens wrestle uh, in Minneapolis, and Stevens did some patented bump usually, but he did not do it on this night, and Flair was disappointed, and he said, you know, if I be- grow up and become a pro wrestler, like, I'm going to do my spots every match because that's what the fans want to see. Sure. I'm not sure if that really holds up over decades never mind years well it doesn't translate if it's on tv it's one thing if you're doing that in a show and you know if you're in Fayetteville one night and then you're in florence south carolina the next night yeah do those because you don't have the same audience when it's on tv you Mm -hmm. know every week for three hours and then after that when you're doing the same spots then it becomes okay i've seen all these i think there's what you can do in a house show that only those people are seeing that and it's special for just them versus, okay, I'm doing it on the TV again because people expect to see that on the TV. Meanwhile, you know, that makes sense. They're just rolling their eyes, right? No, you're absolutely right. That's an, that's an excellent point. If you're doing it on TV, every time you're on TV, you're kind of ruining the whole thing. Brendan Stevenson writes, do you think Dusty was a victim of burnout towards the end of JCP? And do you think Crockett, should have had rotating bookers every six months, sort of how they did in Memphis with Waller and Jarrett. You may think that would do you think that would would have helped the product? And do you think Jim Crockett gave Dusty too much power at times? Let's go over here. What do you think? Well, uh, kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier. To a large degree, I think the audience wasn't they weren't burnt out on Dusty the Booker because for the most of it, nobody knew Dusty was the Booker. I mean, none, right. most of the, I didn't know Dusty was booking. I just know Dusty was in every major angle or if somebody came in and they were hot, Dusty was attached to that. So from that standpoint, as far as, you know, I think, cause again, I don't, re- I don't know exactly who got the book after Dusty left, but I do know that, you know, they got to a point where when it was WCW, they were doing the committee and they were kind of, I don't know if the Memphis stuff worked cause Memphis is such a unique territory. And again, with Memphis, it was like, really, those were, bizarre shifts in between those six months you'd have Jarrett, who was you know doing more traditional wrestling booking and lawler who was bringing in movie monsters right Um, so which you know which weird stuff was i mean what we had the new breed we had you know we had laser tron so it's not like we weren't getting weird weird gimmicks that didn't get over either you know not knowing as much at the time about who was getting that book i i do think Dusty Rhodes make Jim Crockett a lot of money. And I don't know who put it in Jim Crockett's ear that he needed to compete with Vince. Dusty Rhodes make Jim Crockett a lot of money. Jim Crockett spent a lot of money. And ultimately, I think with the, the airplane, I think they lost sight of what the business was. And at, at its heart, professional wrestling is the house show. Professional wrestling is is getting people into seats and putting on good shows. And I think everybody, including Crockett was enamored with, with the high life. And I think the cautionary tale you see so often is when you get to that point, 
once you're at the top, you only have one place to go. And, and clearly <laughs> that's exactly what happened with Jim Frog. He got overextended. He, you know, is way over his skis. You know, he moves the office down to Dallas. And then at one time, you know, I think they were running an ice cream joint. So, you know, it was a pretty interesting fall from from where he was in, you know, 85, 86, 87 to where they ended up. Yeah, I mean, Crockett, you know, Jim Crockett himself. I mean, we we hear the stories about how he has bought a, a building in Dallas with marble floors. And like, dude, you're, you know, you're yeah. not a rock star. You're Jim Crockett. I mean, my take, yeah, I do want to say one thing about Dusty because I feel like I was, you know, Dusty did this. I recognize and uh, there's a level where I love Dusty Rhodes because Dusty Rhodes was important for the business Mm -hmm. and Dusty Rhodes laid out a lot of stuff. And, you know, you saw the impact that he had with NXT and the people that worked with him. If you talked with, you know, those anybody that worked for Dusty or, or learned from Dusty. You know, you hear what he felt about the business. Dusty Rhodes loved this business. Dusty Rhodes loved himself. I think ultimately his legacy is bigger than anything I could say negative about how he was in, in Jim Crockett. Because at the same time, he's also responsible for a lot of good memories that I have at matches. So from that standpoint, I don't want anybody to think I would just down Dusty. Dusty was incredibly important for the business. I agree with you, and you're right. He His legacy is not that last two years unsuccessfully booking JCP. Um, you know, I, I mean, obviously, you can write an encyclopedia about Dusty, never mind a book. I mean, he was over huge up here in the WWF back in the 70s when he was wrestling superstar Billy Graham, and then somehow he got that Polka Dots gimmick over like crazy in 89-90. So, I mean, obviously, it's it's there. But for me to answer Brandon's question, I do think that it would have been good had they, you know, just said to Dusty right up front, look, you're going to book for six months and then we're going to use someone else, even if you're booking extremely well for those six months, but we'll probably bring you back to do another six months. I think having the same booker for five years, you know, Brandon used the word burnout and that's exactly what happens. You get burned out, you run out of ideas. And I just wish Dusty had been able to say, look, you know, I have been doing, you know, in 88, I've been doing this for four years. I need to step back. I'll do it again when my batteries are recharged. And I I think things would have been a lot better off. Steve Generali asked, could JCP had given the Jimmy Valiant or Bugsy McGraw comedy spot to Mighty Igor and would it have worked? I know Igor had a successful run in Mid-Atlantic for five years prior to the WTBS years. What do you think? I think that spot works. I think it could. I, I didn't see Igor a lot. I, I, I'm aware of a lot of his work. What, when you have wrestlers like that, when you have uh, the comedy spot, when you have a Jimmy Valiant or you have a Rufus R for A-Train Jones, and this is just my observation, you have to have that natural enemy. And the natural enemy of your mid-card comedy babyface is your mid-card evil manager. Right. And so, you know, if, if, as long as you had as buffoonish as he was, as long as you had Paul Jones, you can get that over because Paul Jones is going to, you know, people are going to want to see Paul Jones get knocked on his ass. Yeah. So, you know, as long as you have that, I think Jimmy Valiant managed to get that over to a point where he had his own headline show. You know, he main invented a major show in Greensboro for Jimmy Valiant. 
that's pretty good. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. did he have any other paydays quite like that? So, uh, but but he could get it over because he connected with people. If you can get the baby face that can connect with people on that level, and then you can threaten him with, you know, a malevolent manager, I think that gets over naturally. You just have, the chemistry has to be there. I think Valiant worked great. He worked great with Paul Jones. He worked great with Gary Hart. Gary Hart was a much different manager than Paul Jones. He was sinister. He was sneaky. He brought in these exotic wrestlers from the East, and he wasn't as bombastic. But maybe you were more scared of Gary Hart than you ever were of Paul Jones. You didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't like Paul Jones. You were scared of Gary Hart. Excellent answer. I mean, I don't think they could have brought in Mighty Igor because you can only have so many guys with that gimmick, the comedy gimmick. And if, if you have too many of them, it's not good. Had they used him instead of Jimmy Valiant? I mean, I don't think there was a wrestler who could have been better than Jimmy Valiant. I mean, Jimmy Valiant played that perfectly. He was on the first, what, three or four star. I mean, he was steady in the area. I mean, maybe he took a little time off here and there, but he was a mainstay in the area in that mid card, upper mid card for, you know, three or four years straight and never seemed to lose. I never heard anybody that got tired of seeing Jimmy Valiant. Let me put it that way. I never got tired of watching Jimmy Valiant. No. And like I said, like you said, I mean, he was, you know, perfect in that role. Final question, and we're right up to around 60 minutes uh, from Christian Body. If Ricky Steamboat stays, does Dusty still bring in Magnum TA? Your thoughts, Will? I don't know. Again, that that requires a lot of thought around what Ricky Steamboat wanted to do. I, I remember after Starcade 83, when he quote unquote retired. Everybody was like, well, we don't, you know, again, I didn't know Ricky Steamboat. I just know that he was gone and he came back and had a a couple events with Flair. They were on the Boogeyman Jam card. They did a 60 minute draw. I think if he stays, I, I, Ricky Steamboat, as great of a wrestler as he was, could be very two dimensional in Crockett. And um, it depends on who you put him with. I mean, he was good with Tully, but he was always better with Flair. You can't just have him wrestle Flair all the time. And how many tag teams can you put him in? Yeah, Um, knowing how big that Magnum TA was down in Mid South, and reading about him, you know, and and that feud that he had with Mister Wrestling too, that kind of put the rocket in his butt and 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 launched him up there. I think Magnum probably probably comes anyway because there were there were pretty good series of time when Ricky Steamboat and Magnum TA existed at Jim Crockett Promotions at the same time. In fact. They were both on a card that I saw at the Cumberland County Arena. I forget who Magnum TA was wrestling, but I do remember that that Steamboat was wrestling. That was when um, he was going up against Tully for the TV belt. So they were in the same territory for a while. Yeah. So I think Magnum, Magnum was coming no matter what, and probably that was for the best. Because uh, well, I mean, who knows if he ends up in Vince? You know, maybe he does stay healthy because he's not on Ray Road on a rainy night. It's just hard to say, but I, I don't see any. He's going to come in regardless because that was the right business move to make. Yeah, the, the I mean, I agree with everything you said. Ricky Steamboat had been a top babyface in the Mid-Atlantic area. Aside from that post-Arcade 83 retirement, which didn't last very long. From I mean, he had been a big star since 77, and he left uh, for the WWF in early 1985. That is a long run in one place for a babyface. It was probably time for him to go somewhere else anyway. But 
I mean, the, the real question might be if Barry Windham stays, would Dusty have brought in Magnum? Because Barry was going to get the huge push. Uh, he was going to win the U.S. title from Wahoo at Starcade 84. So that's the bigger question. I think either way, Magnum's coming in because Dusty obviously liked him. And Magnum, you know, his dream was to wrestle in his home area. He's from yeah. from Virginia. So I think he wants to go and Dusty wants him. So I think he's coming in anyway. Yeah, I, I think there's no way around that. And um, no, that makes perfect sense. That makes perfect sense. Well, this has been one of my favorite episodes of Stick to Wrestling. Uh, I love it when we have a guy come in who's really knowledgeable and has a story to tell, like like you did today. Like, here's my story going up as a Mid-Atlantic wrestling fan. Thank you for sharing. Thank you, John. I really, um, I've, this has been a tremendous amount of fun. Um, I, I hope you have me back because I've, I've got a lot more that I could talk about. But great show. Oh, yes. um, thanks for hosting me. And um, I look forward to, to listening to more of these. But um, I really do appreciate the opportunity, John. I appreciate you taking the time and I appreciate you sharing that part of your brain. And I want to also thank Lou Kippelman, our fantastic producer who makes us sound way better than we deserve to. And this has been a production of the Arcadian Vanguard podcast network. Be safe out there. So long from the Granite State. This concludes our podcast day.